0: Please remain standing for the reading from scripture this morning. I'll be reading from Revelation 4, going back over some of the same territory that we covered last week, but going on then to the end of the chapter. Revelation chapter four. After this I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne, there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. be to the Father. Please be seated. So we come back to Revelation chapter four this morning. I, I have to confess a little bit of the reason for this has to do with Pastor Matt Vandenhavel who was here last Sunday, instead of being in his own church, and he always gets really grumpy with me when I get out of sync in our series. So he said, you cannot go on to chapter five this week. And I said, okay, there's lots more in chapter four that we can do. So, so we're back here for that reason, but mostly we're back here by way of review. Because there are some things that we need to just keep in front of us, not only from Revelation chapter 4, but from the whole book as we go forward. If we are going to understand what God is saying to his people in this sometimes viewed as difficult little book. We're also back here to dig deeper into some of the things that we did touch on last Lord's Day to actually just get behind a couple of those ideas and those images and recognize what they mean for us. So first, by way of review, and this will apply to the entire book of Revelation, it really applies to the whole of Scripture, start with what you know. Sometimes we're reading through scripture. I was having a conversation with someone who was just telling me, you know, I read through a few verses and then I come to something and it's like, I don't know what that means. And and it's so easy to get stuck. If you have in the last couple of days, like so many people, started a Bible reading plan and you're now in the early chapters of Genesis, and that's pretty exciting, you have some tough sledding ahead by the time you get into even the later chapters of Exodus, and especially Leviticus, Numbers, and if you think that's bad, wait till you get to First Chronicles. Um, there's so much there that is kind of hard to understand, but I'll be making reference today to a passage in First Chronicles that you may have missed in your going through the Bible in a year, and it's an important piece of the framework by which we understand Revelation, but we start with what we know. And when you come to something that you don't know, it's okay. Somebody probably does. Just let it go. Read on. Continue with what you know. Often if we start with what we know, it's in that light that we can interpret the parts that we don't. So what do we know about the book of Revelation? And this goes all the way back to the first sermons early in the fall. One of the things that we know, and this is important, This is so important for the whole book that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a revelation from Jesus Christ. And if we come to this book, If we come to the revelation looking for information about the end of the world or about the Antichrist or the Mark of the Beast or COVID-19, if we come to this book looking for anything that is not in some sense the revelation of Jesus Christ, then we are likely to leave disappointed and almost certainly confused. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us portraits of Jesus in what Reformed theology calls the state of humiliation. Jesus, when he had emptied himself of the glory that was his with the Father before the world began and had taken the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, as Paul says, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. He's not highly exalted on the cross. That's like the apex of his humiliation, actually, but because he was willing to go through that for us and for our salvation, God has highly exalted him, and Jesus today is as we find him in this book of Revelation, exalted to the right hand of the Father, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. In addition, we are told in Revelation chapter one, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Now here I'm departing from what some regard as orthodoxy about this book, but please understand. This book was written to a specific group of real people It was written to the seven churches of Asia Minor at a very specific time in history, the first century, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, almost certainly before AD 70. Now we'll talk more about that later on, but if you've been looking in your study Bible and it says Revelation was written in AD 96, that doesn't mean it's a bad study Bible. But the truth of the matter is, if Revelation had been written after the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, it would have been almost impossible not to make reference to that. And that's just one among many reasons why we believe it was written before AD 70. And it was written to show God's servants, God's people, the things that must soon take place. That must soon take place from their point of reference. We noted a few weeks back in the letter to the church at Philadelphia, Jesus promised blessing to his people during a time of trial and persecution. He said, I will keep you from the hour of trial. And he attached that to the declaration, I am coming soon. Now what meaning would that have had for people in the first century if Jesus' intent was not to actually keep them from the hour of trial and to come soon in a frame of reference that would make sense to them. Real people in a real church were really struggling and suffering. And Jesus never offers us some kind of hollow comfort. He never comes along and says, don't worry about it, I'll I'll be here. might take two or three thousand years, but it'll happen. He offers them real comfort. As we saw in that sermon, one commentator wrote of that passage, does it make sense that Christ would promise the church in Philadelphia protection from something that would happen thousands of years later? As if he were saying, be of good cheer, you faithful suffering Christians of first century Asia Minor, I will not let those Soviet missiles and killer bees of the 20th century get to you, and tells you how old the commentary is too. The answer is no, it doesn't. He spoke to real people with real problems and he offered them real comfort in the hope of his coming. So we start with what we know and we interpret the more difficult sections in the light of that. And Really, this is just basic hermeneutics, fancy word for biblical interpretation. This is the approach we ought to take to the whole of Scripture. And speaking of hermeneutics and interpretive principles, at the beginning of our text, in Revelation chapter four this morning, we read, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard, that would be the voice of Jesus spoken of in chapter one. The first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And upon hearing the voice, John notes at once, I was in the spirit. Now we've seen that before in Revelation chapter one. John begins this vision by saying, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I'm not gonna dwell too much on this, this morning. We will come across the expression, I was in the spirit four times in the book of Revelation. And that's kind of an interpretive point. It helps us to figure out what goes with what. Because each time there's actually a break, John will come back to that refrain, I was in the spirit. See, something very similar in the book of Genesis. When you're reading through the book of Genesis, and I know some of you are this month, when you're reading through the book of Genesis, watch for the phrase, these are the generations of. Because it starts off that way in chapter two, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, and then you get to the generations of Noah, the generations of Abraham, the generations of Isaac and his children. Each time... God puts that phrase, these are the generations of, you're coming to a place where there's a bit of a take a breath, the story's going to move on, and the story is probably going to move on with a little bit different focus than what it had before. It's repeated some nine times in the book of Genesis. John tells us, though, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice like A trumpet, introducing the vision of Christ, that first vision. Jesus walking among the candlesticks, holding the seven stars in his hand and speaking to the churches. And I'm going to do this. Some of you may find it annoying. I don't know. But I'm going to do this along the way. Free information here. Not a major point in the sermon. John says, though, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. It was a day. It was not an hour or an hour and a half. It was a day, and it belonged specifically to the Lord. And the early church long identified the Lord's Day as Sunday. Let's leave it at that. Then here in chapter 4, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Again, beginning with what we know. We saw last Lord's Day, that this vision is not anything new several times throughout the scriptures people have very similar visions in exodus chapter 4 moses and aaron nadab and abihu and 70 of the elders of israel went up and they saw the god of israel there was under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone remember that it's going to come up again just shortly they went up and they saw god and beneath the feet of the God of Israel, so from God's perspective down, from their perspective up between them and God, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And in Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. We're very familiar with that particular one. Less familiar, Ezekiel chapter one. Over the heads of the living creatures, more on them later, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. So there's that pavement again, as it were, of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So Ezekiel sees the living creatures. We know them as cherubim or seraphim. And above them, this expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And if we were to read on, which we will not do, not this morning, but if we were to read on, we would discover that the one seated on the throne in Ezekiel's vision, that would be God, looks very much like the being that John perceived seated on a throne in the book of Revelation, which shouldn't surprise us. Different prophets, different periods of history, but ultimately the very same vision of the God, the living God, who sits on a throne, who oversees and overrules all of creation. One of the big ideas that I've already come to and we will come back to again and again in Revelation is this. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. If you disagree with me in the end about everything else I say about the book of Revelation, you cannot disagree with that. And that ultimately is our answer as the church, as the people of God to everything that comes up. All that scary stuff that's out there in the world today. What if COVID-19 mutates and becomes even more deadly and dangerous? The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign. What about the wars and the rumors of wars, China, rattling it's the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and he shall reign. Take that away from this book, you cannot go wrong. Go out into the world today and tomorrow and live as if the kingdom of this world was the kingdom of our God and of his Christ because in fact it is. He sits on this universal throne ruling over all of his creatures and all of their actions in such a way that his sovereign will is accomplished. What does that mean for us as his people? In fact, everything must work together for our salvation. There's even echoes of this vision in the book of Acts when Stephen was being stoned to death. Talk about a time to reflect on the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. That's what we're seeing in Exodus and Ezekiel and Isaiah. Stephen saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Not something anyone had ever seen before. Stephen saw it, we'll encounter more of it in Revelation chapter five, but in every case, the reason the visions are so similar is that the various prophets are being given a glimpse of a reality that transcends this creation. You might remember some text where Paul says, the things which are seen, the things that we can touch, these things are temporary. They do not last. They will pass away. But the things which are unseen, those are the things that are eternal. And the prophets are seeing the eternal in these visions. They are seeing what is described in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, as the true tent, the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. They are seeing the true holy of holies, the very throne room of God, and while their descriptions vary a little bit from one to another, according to the one writing and the time in which he's writing, the substance is the same. There is a throne with one seated on it who has the appearance of a man, but it is clearly more than a man. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And in Ezekiel, and above the expanse, over their heads, there was a likeness of a throne in an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with human appearance. And upward from what, this is always interesting to me, he had a human appearance, but listen to what that appearance looked like. Human shape, I think, might be a better way of translating that. Upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist. I saw as it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Kind of like a rainbow with the appearance of an emerald, the glory of God as it surrounds his throne. And Ezekiel goes on, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. We see it also in the description given in verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. As Psalm 18 described the appearance of the glory of God. Then the earth reeled and rocked, and the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked, because he, the Lord, was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub, the living creatures, and the other visions, and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness, his covering his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, though, Hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, Hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them, just like John seeing in Revelation chapter four. And again, this is consistent with Ezekiel, who wrote, as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Ezekiel describes these living creatures more fully early in the chapter, but these are the same living creatures that are described by John in Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. They are the seraphim of Isaiah 6 that are always called cherubim in other passages. And around the throne, John says, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. These same living creatures never cease to say, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then beneath the throne, at the feet or the foot of the throne, the feet of the God of Israel, what does John see? He sees this expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal, to use Ezekiel's words. It's a pavement, as it were, of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness, As Moses perceived it, in Revelation chapter 4, John says, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And yes, if you are from the Christian Reformed Church, there's a song, one of our favorite songs, by the sea of crystal, saints in glory stand. This is that sea. But if you've been imagining a sea of crystal like an ocean, but it's crystal because it's got no waves, you have to shift gears just a little bit. It's not that kind of sea, it is in fact the reality of what is symbolized by the laver that we saw last week in the tabernacle and the temple, the giant bronze washstand. That laver is even described that way in several places in the Old Testament, among them 1 Chronicles 18, which tells us, and from Tibhath and from Kun, cities of Hadadezer, David took a large amount of bronze. With it, Solomon made the bronze sea. Solomon made that giant bronze laver that sat between the holy place and the great altar of sacrifice, that giant sea where the priests had to wash because God is holy, and we have to be clean when we come into his presence. One of the most significant things, though, that we can pick up from Revelation chapter 4 is the perspective on this sea. i follow closely here because in all of the old covenant passages that I read earlier, the various prophets have seen this same thing, but they have seen it from below. They've seen it as a pavement or a firmament or an expanse, something that is between them and God, a barrier. As we considered together last week, all the old covenant people who had this vision saw it from below. They were standing on earth and they were looking up and there was that pavement and God was above it, separated from them. But Jesus opened a new and a living way. And so John is brought straight into the throne room and he sees that sea of glass like a crystal pavement as it were of sapphire stone like very heaven for clearness. Not from below but from above where he stands in the very presence of God himself because Jesus opened the way into the Holy of Holies through the sacrifice of himself and John, and we, indeed, have confidence to enter there by his precious blood. And with that, I want to backtrack just a little, because there was one element in the description that I left out so far. We've seen the throne and the one who is seated on it flashing out from the throne As flashed from the top of Mount Sinai when God appeared there in glory to the people of Israel, there's lightning, there's rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven blazing torches, which are the seven spirits of God. Last week we noted that there was a sevenfold candlestick, seven lamps that burned in the holy place before the veil that led into the most holy place, day and night, forever and ever, as long as that place stood. Symbolizing the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God that burns day and night before his throne. Circling or surrounding all of that, we see the brightness of the glory of God like a rainbow, the living creatures, cherubim and seraphim and the crystal sea beneath. Try to just get some picture of this, not in an idolatrous way, but... Try to get it in your head. Any human throne, any royal personage that you've ever seen, fictional or non-fictional, none of it comes close. This is God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the living God seated on the throne of the universe which exists in him and his glory shining forth from this throne. But verse four introduced something else. It said, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. Now again, start with what we know. These 24 thrones surround the throne. In other words, whatever authority they may have is derived completely from the authority of the one in the center. Whatever authority these 24 elders may have, whoever they may represent, it all flows to them from God. And we're not gonna take the time, but we will eventually see similar structures in the empires and the kingdoms of this world that are spoken of later in Revelation and also in Old Covenant scripture. So there are these 24 thrones encircling the throne of God, and seated on the 24 thrones are people who are described as elders. Very familiar term to students of scripture. It's used in the Old Testament, it's used in the New Testament to describe those who lead the people of God, and that alone should be enough to bring us to the conclusion that these 24 thrones represent the church, gathered around and before the throne of God. The number 24 itself speaks to 24 divisions of priests and 24 divisions of singers that David appointed to serve night and day before the throne, before the holy place where God made his name to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And when we finally see the church, the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, I have to preach on that, Sometime later on, but trust me for now, that's what it is. The angel said to John, come, let me show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he took him away in the spirit and he showed him the new Jerusalem. What is the bride? The bride of Christ is always the church. This vision of this city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, progressively coming to earth, if you will, is a vision of the church in all of the church's glory, the way Christ sees her redeemed and holy in the sight of God. I wanna blow the sermon later on, but if you can imagine, John standing there with this angel watching the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven from God. Imagine standing at the front of the church as a groom and watching the most beautiful woman in the world walking down the aisle. Your bride. And she's perfect. That's how Jesus sees the church. This perfect, holy, pure bride. But I digress because that vision tells us that this new Jerusalem, this city, which is the church, has 12 gates. And on each of the 12 gates is the name of one of the tribes of Israel. And it has 12 foundations. And on each of the foundations is one of the names of the apostles of the Lamb. And if that weren't enough, consider how these elders are dressed dressed, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. This is raiment that was specifically promised by Jesus himself to the churches, to those who would overcome and who would stand victorious with him. So these 24 thrones with the 24 elders, this is us. This is the church. This is the bride of Jesus Christ himself as we gather together as we enter behind the veil into the most holy place to worship before the throne of God above. The 24 elders on the 24 thrones represent us, but not as delegates to some distant court or parliament. They correspond to us in the vision in the same way that the sea of crystal corresponds to that bronze laver on earth. This passage ultimately teaches us that the church militant, the church on earth is already, and always has been, the church triumphant. Paul taught this in Ephesians chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, past tense, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It was also the promise of the Lord Jesus to the church at Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So this is where the passage reaches its culmination. Around the throne are those four living creatures, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. As I said last week, God doesn't object to repetition as long as we're repeating stuff that's worth repeating. And his angels declare his holiness day and night before his throne. So watch what happens next whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne and who lives forever and ever, whenever and when is that day and night, they never cease to say holy. Holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. So what's he saying? Well, day and night, whenever those cherubim cry, holy, 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 the church hears and falls down and worships the one seated on the throne who lives forever and elder, forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him who is seated on the throne. See, this is, this is who we are. This is why we are here. If you came to church thinking, I hope I get something out of this, then I'm sorry, you probably won't. We're not to come here thinking that. We are not to worship God thinking, I sure hope God accepts my worship and then pours out all kinds of great stuff on me. He will, but maybe not in the way you think. We don't come to God as those who want something from God. We come to God as those who recognize that he is worthy and as those who are ready to fall down and make that declaration, this is who we are, this is what we do, because this is where we live. There's a particular sense in which we come before the throne room of God whenever we come together to worship, but I really think that we come together in this way to be reminded that we are not only the church when we are together like this, we are always the church. Through the precious blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, without spot or stain, we are brought into the holy place. Not just once a week or once a month when we come for communion, we are brought into the presence of the living God. And that is where we live, and there just one day is worth thousands elsewhere. So what is the mission of the church? There's a lot of talk about that these days, but here it is in Revelation chapter four. We hear a lot of talk about entitlement these days, sometimes in a positive way, sometimes in a negative way. The fact of the matter is the only being in the universe who is truly entitled to anything is the almighty living God who is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Next Sunday, if the Lord is willing, we will see that the worship service not only goes on from the end of chapter four into chapter five, but in chapter five it crescendos into a roar until every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them are crying out to the glory of God and the lamb upon his throne. That's next week. As we go on our way this morning, this is our takeaway. This is who we are and this is what we do because we live in the presence of God Almighty and Jesus has opened the way into the Holy of Holies. We've been brought behind the veil. and We stand in the presence of God himself, not only in our worship, but in everything. So not only in our worship, but in our work. And in our play, in our relationships with friends and family and even foes, in our eating and in our drinking, in our words and our deeds, in the very thoughts and meditations of our heart, we are called to cast our crowns, our achievement, whatever glory we may think we've received. We are called to cast them before the throne of God, ascribing all glory and honor and praise to him alone for he alone is worthy. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, you created and sustained all things through your powerful word, the Lord Jesus Christ. You spoke and you brought everything that we see around us into being. And you have been guiding and uh, sustaining, upholding all things by that powerful word since the beginning, and you will do so until the end. And Lord, we look to you. We look to your Son, Jesus Christ our Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords, and as we go out this morning into the troubles and struggles and tribulations of a world that sometimes seems to have gone completely mad, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you, to set our minds on heavenly things, things that are above, where Christ Jesus is seated at your right hand, and to set our gaze firmly on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, that we may run with patience the race that is set before us, faithful even unto death, knowing that you will give us a crown of life. In Jesus' name, amen.